Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. If you see that foot drop with a buckling knee injury, you should consider that perhaps it had a dislocated knee. If you don't pick it up within the first six to eight hours, you're pretty doomed. So the same mechanism in different ages can lead to totally different injuries. A straight leg raise is neither 100% sensitive nor specific. That is gross instability. You won't miss it. But maybe the test they need is a needle in the knee as opposed to an x-ray of the knee. And I think our mindset has to change. I used to take a very simplistic approach to knee injuries in the ED. If it's broken or dislocated, reduce, immobilize, and refer. And if it's not broken, assume that it's a soft tissue injury, instruct the patient with the rice mnemonic, maybe apply a splint, maybe give them some crutches, and have them check in with their family doctor in a few days. It was very unsatisfying not to really have a solid understanding of the specific knee injuries that I should be looking out for and just lumping every knee injury with a normal x-ray into the soft tissue injury basket. I didn't feel that I was taking good care of these patients, and actually, I wasn't. And for me, that just wasn't good enough. You see, there's a whole slew of very important occult knee injuries, those that have a normal or near-normal x-ray, that can cause serious morbidity if you miss them. And for the catch-all soft tissue injuries, there's some subtleties in diagnosis and management that'll make a real difference to our patients. So, to help us pick up those tough occult injuries, hone our diagnostic skills, and do better for our knee-injured patients, I'm so pleased to have back on the show, actually the very first guest expert I ever had on EM cases, way back from episode number one in March 2010, the brains behind the brilliant casted course, my colleague at North York General Hospital, the emergency orthopedic educator extraordinaire, Dr. Aaron Ciel. Welcome, Dr. Ciel. Thank you very much, Anton. It really is a pleasure to be here. Awesome. And also from North York General Hospital, the orthopedic surgeon who you may remember from episodes 52 and 58, the man that all the other orthopedic surgeons go to when they need help with a difficult case, Dr. Hussein Median. Welcome, Hussein. Thank you very much for having me. So let's jump right into our first case. A 40-year-old man lost control while driving and collided into a barrier at about 70 kilometers an hour. He was belted, no airbag was deployed, and there was no passenger intrusion. He didn't lose consciousness and has full recollection of the event. His only complaint is severe right knee pain. On exam, his primary survey is unremarkable, and on secondary survey, there's no signs of head injury. There's a slight C-spine tenderness, but no T or L-spine tenderness. His chest and abdo exam are normal, fast exam is negative, and pelvis is stable. His extremity exam reveals a swollen, tender right knee with an obvious effusion and very limited range of motion. So... Before we dive into this case and talk about the differential of this knee injury, Dr. CL, let's just talk very generally about mechanisms of knee injuries. And in general, can you tell us what are the classic mechanisms of knee injuries that you're looking to elicit in your history taking with their like commonly associated 
diagnoses. So it's an excellent point. A lot of times, orthopedically, what we tend to do is focus on the x-ray and think that'll tell us it. But the pearls of orthopedics are really sitting in the history and physical just like they are for chest pain and abdo pain and headache. So it's the same principles that if we carry into our orthopedic patients, we're able to pick these up. So as you mentioned, the force involved is really important to know how significant a force was. Did you fall down two steps or 12 feet off a ladder? That's really important. Mechanism is very important. So a typical story for tearing an ACL would be someone who decelerated, so a planted foot, a change of direction. They might have heard a pop or a shift. So hearing those parts of the story are very suggestive. If someone had a valgus strain to their knee, so they're, either they slipped and their knee buckled in, or perhaps in football, somebody hit them from the outside of their knee and a valgus stress. In someone who's 25 years of age, that's a typical story for an MCL injury. But if someone were 75 years of age and they slipped on the ice with the same mechanism, when you have that valgus stress, you tend to sort of put a force on the outside of your knee, the lateral side. And in the elderly, when you have osteoporosis, the same mechanism causes a lateral tibial plateau fracture. So mechanism is important, but also adding age into the factor makes a difference. If you take a 10-year-old, 11-year-old child who's playing hockey and has a valgus stress to their knee, that's a typical mechanism of what's called a Salter II fracture, their distal femur. So sometimes with three different age groups, you get a different mechan- uh, the same mechanism, but you can also have three different injuries then just because of age. Meniscal pathology tends to be with a twist. If you're young, you need a pretty solid twist to injure your meniscus. Basketball, skiing, whatever it happens to be. But if somebody has a thin meniscus secondary to osteoarthritis, 55, 60, 65, they can just get up from a chair. They can get up from a couch and have pain in their knee and quite exquisite pain. And that's a classic way for an elderly patient or an older patient to have a degenerative meniscal tear. So adding age to the mix helps a lot in terms of understanding where the weak link in the chain might be, understanding the mechanism. Is it a valgus stress, a planted injury? And in the case that you described where there's a high force and it could be a deceleration injury, knee against dashboard, then you've got to worry about other sort of internal structures of the knee for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so twisting mechanism, we're thinking meniscus, sudden deceleration, planted foot, we're thinking ACL, Valgus strain, it depends on age. In a kitty, you might be thinking about a Salter II distal femoral fracture, whereas in a 25-year-old, you might be thinking MCL. And in an older person, you might be thinking a lateral tibial plateau fracture, which can be tough to diagnose and we'll get to later. So again, mechanism, totally key. Age, totally key. One of the principles I want to get to before we get into the details of the case is the importance of the straight leg raise. And this is just kind of in general with people with knee injuries. Can you just explain why the straight leg raise is such an important thing to do in the physical exam? Well, straight leg raise is quite important in the fact that you want to make sure that the continuity of the extensor mechanism is present. You can ask the patient to lift up the leg. And we forget that many times to do that. And If you forget to do that and a patient has discontinuity of the extensor mechanism, you miss that discontinuity, it can be disastrous because, as you're aware, if your extensor mechanism is not in continuity, you can't walk. So that's a major problem. Now, the only thing that I can add here, I've had several calls from my eMERGE colleagues, and they call me, they say, oh, I have a patellar tendon rupture. I say, how come? How did you diagnose that? Oh, the patient can straight leg raise. I said, well, that's not enough probably. Why? Because if a patient has a knee injury, has hemarthrosis, is in severe pain, they can straight leg raise. So the 
Absence of straight leg raise does not diagnose an extensor mechanism rupture in by itself. We have to be aware of that. If a patient has a multiligamentous injury in their knee and their extensor mechanism is in continuity, they will not be able to straight leg raise. So if you really want to call me and tell me that, you know, the patient can't straight leg raise and the patient has an extensor mechanism rupture, it's easy. Take a syringe. Put it inside the knee, aspirate the hemarthrosis, inject five cc's of lidocaine, take the pain away, then ask the patient to straight leg raise. If then they can straight leg raise, then you can probably be a bit, at least a bit more confident that you have an extensor mechanism disruption because sometimes you really can't feel the gap in the quads or the patellar tendon because it's really swollen. That's one of the other ways that we diagnose extensor mechanism ruptures. A straight leg raise is neither 100% sensitive nor specific in order to sort of to diagnose it. But what it does is it at least puts the thought in our head. And if we think of the diagnosis, we're much less likely to miss the diagnosis. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the sort of most common and important occult knee injuries that we're going to be talking throughout the podcast about. Dr. Sayal, you run one of the fracture clinics at North York General Hospital, and you see all these patients in follow-up. What are the sort of common diagnoses that ED docs tend to miss after normal or near-normal knee x-ray that we should probably be doing some sort of cognitive forcing strategy? Every time we see a knee that we're thinking there's something going on there, do you have kind of a list in your head that you go through? I do have a list, just like for patients with chest pain. If you saw a 55-year-old lady in her trope and ECG or normal, we know there's a differential beyond ACS. And you could have an ACS and still have normal tests. But you also have to think about other things, dissection, PE, all that stuff. Similarly, for a knee, you can have a fracture and the x-ray is normal. So it may not be picked up for, like, let's say, a lateral tibial plateau fracture. So that's an important thing. There could be other conditions where the x-ray won't show it to you. So we just briefly discussed patellar tendon rupture, quads rupture. You could have a septic knee, and perhaps that's what's causing their knee pain. If you don't think of the diagnosis, then maybe the test they need is a needle in the knee as opposed to an x-ray of the knee. Sometimes hip pathology can present as knee pain. We do a knee x-ray, it's normal, but we all know for oral exams, examine the joint above and below. We can ask ourselves if we really do that in the emergency department. And I can tell you about a case later on, perhaps, that you know, a patient presented with a knee pain and I sent it off to one of our orthopedic surgeons and he had a hip fracture that I totally missed. You can have a knee dislocation that spontaneously reduces. A knee dislocation is a devastating knee injury. And probably half of patients who had dislocate their knee, it'll spontaneously reduce before they come to the emergency department. Quads tendon rupture, patellar tendon rupture are important things not to miss. A septic knee is important not to miss. Referred pain from the hip is important not to miss. Compartment syndrome. For anybody with an MSK injury, just think compartment syndrome. Just feel above and below, and at least you give it consideration. Just as with a two-year-old with fever, even if they look well, you check their neck to make sure they don't have meningitis. You should have the same approach to an M a patient with an MSK injury. And the final one that's... Maybe not so critical to pick up in eMERGE, but if we don't pick it up and it doesn't get picked up down the road, it can cause problems, is a patient with a locked knee. So that's Dr. Ciel's important list of knee pathology that can present with a normal x-ray. Dr. Median is now going to comment on compartment syndrome in particular. Compartment syndrome is important. Compartment syndrome does not only happen in very, very severe injuries necessarily. You might have only a simple 
tibial plateau fracture, it's the metaphysis, it's vascular, it bleeds. If it bleeds enough, it increases the compartment pressure. One of the good signs of compartment syndrome is progressive loss of sensation. As soon as the patient tells you, oh, okay, my sensation is becoming worse and worse, I'm becoming more and more numb, that's a red flag. Well, that's a great pearl. Let's review the general principles of knee injuries that we've talked about so far. First, a normal x-ray does not rule out a serious knee injury. There's several important diagnoses that you should consider in any patient who comes in with a knee pain and has a normal x-ray of the knee. So the diagnostic considerations in knee injuries with normal x-ray are a quads or patellar tendon rupture, a lateral tibial plateau fracture, a dislocation with reduction, a locked knee, a referred injury from the hip, compartment syndrome, and a septic knee. Next, mechanism of injury, of course, in all orthopedic injuries is key. And you have to think really about four different mechanisms when it comes to the knee. You have to think about a direct blow, a valgus strain, a sudden deceleration, or a twisting. So with a direct blow, you need to think about things like patella fracture, knee dislocation, tibia fracture. With a valgus strain, you should be thinking about MCL sprain or a lateral tibial plateau fracture. With a sudden deceleration, you should be thinking about an ACL tear. And with a twisting mechanism, you should be thinking about a meniscus injury. The third principle is that age is key. So the same mechanism in different ages can lead to totally different injuries. For example, with a valgus force injury to the knee, you should consider a distal femur fracture in a child versus an MCL injury in a young adult versus a lateral tibial plateau fracture in an older person. And the last principle to think about in knee injuries is always perform a straight leg raise to assess for extensor mechanism function. So let's get back to our 40-year-old man who lost control while driving. He's got this swollen, tender right knee with an obvious effusion. He's got very limited range of motion. Dr. Median, what extremity injuries are on your differential diagnosis in this case? So as soon as you see a dashboard injury, then you're thinking about ligamentous injuries slash fractures because of axial loading or slash direct injury to the kneecap or patella fractures. At the same time, a dashboard injury, you're thinking about a posterior hip dislocation. A posterior hip dislocation is very easy to diagnose. You look at the patient, the patient's internally rotated, shortened. You don't need any other significant finding to really think about it. As soon as you see the patient, patient in severe pain, internally rotated, shortened, you can say, oh, most probably dashboard injury, most probably has an associated posterior hip dislocation. So I think in the context of diagnosis, you go into the field of more severe traumatic injuries like knee dislocation, multiligamentous injuries, possibility of patella fractures, and uh, at the same time, think about hip pathology. And at the same time, whenever you're involved in these uh, type of injuries, foot and ankle injuries are the most common that are missed like Taylor neck fractures, especially when patients come with multi-traumas into the emergency department. You look at everywhere and the patient's, you know, not very alert or oriented to answer to all your questions, having received so many medications and narcotics on board. And 
you address all the joints apart from the foot and ankle. And then you, after two weeks, three weeks, the patient starts saying, oh, I, I really have bad ankle pain. You get an x-ray and you see you've missed a tail or neck fracture, which can have consequences in terms of treatment in the future. And it's a great point as well because we think sometimes it's a dashboard injury, but if the patient knew the the impact was impending, they tend to tense up your leg. And it tends to be something maybe more of a floorboard injury as opposed to a dashboard injury. And as as Hossein says, if the patient comes in and they're rubtunded, sometimes it's hard to know it was a dashboard that made contact with their knee or the floorboard that made it with their foot. And that's how the pain got transmitted. So absolutely and we are not very good at all in Emerge of generally looking for tailless, calcaneal, these sorts of injuries. They're not common, and things that aren't common are commonly missed. So absolutely, uh, to look sort of beyond, not, not just proximally, but also distally. Right on. So let's go back to this case. You complete a full exam of the knee, including a neurovascular exam, and this reveals normal pedal pulses bilaterally, However, there is significant ligamentous laxity of the knee. After the C-spine's been cleared and the patient's observed for a few hours with serial exams, he's placed in a full-leg back slab and sent home with orthopedic follow-up. Three days later, the patient returns to the emergency department with severe foot pain and a cold, pulseless foot. He goes on to have emergency vascular surgery for a massive palpiteal thrombosis and never actually fully recovers full function of his right lower extremity. So Dr. Ciel, if you could go back in time, what would you do differently? Well, for sure what I'd do similarly is I'd marry the same woman. I was very lucky. She's a lovely lady. But what would I do differently? I guess you pertain to this case. So what would I do differently? I think we have to appreciate a rare injury is a is a knee dislocation. And how does one pick up a knee dislocation that's spontaneously reduced? A couple of things. Usually it's quite swollen, but if you've torn the medial capsule, like an MCL tear, you may not contain a hematoma. And it may not be as swollen. You may not get as much of a hemarthrosis as even with an ACL tear. So it's nice to see a big swollen knee, but sometimes it doesn't look as swollen as you might expect. But you need to examine a knee. So having the patient lie down on a stretcher is the way to examine them, not in the wheelchair. You need to expose the knee. You need to look at the opposite knee and see what it's like. If the patient lies in the bed and you just put a pillow underneath their distal femur, you can now flex their knee 20 degrees. And now without having to lift their leg, their heel can stay on the bed. You can now pull forward for a Lachman. You can posteriorly check for a posterior drawer. Valgus varus strain without having to lift the leg and you can get some value of an exam. If you have a a knee dislocation, it's going to be loose, generally speaking. So three out of four ligament disruption, by definition, is a dislocated knee. So you have to look for it. The other thing sometimes that you might find is if after a buckling knee injury, someone complains that, you know, my knee kind of buckled on me, and they have a foot drop. So if they have a buckling knee injury and they have a foot drop, it could have been a common perineal nerve palsy. If they got hit by a hockey stick on the outside of their leg and they have a foot drop, that's direct trauma. That's a neuropraxia from hitting it. But if their knee buckled and they felt like it shifted, and now they have a foot drop, and just as Dr. Median mentioned, you have to sort of look for, you know, distally and make sure they're neurovascularly intact. But if you see that foot drop with a buckling knee injury, you should consider that perhaps they had a dislocated knee. And then once you consider it, you're way ahead of the game because most of the time, we just don't think about it. So one of the great pearls is three ligamentous laxity. If you find three ligamentous laxity, then that really raises a red flag for a knee dislocation. What other pearls can you give us on physical exam that can heighten our suspicion for a knee dislocation, an occult one that has reduced by itself? 
a knee that has dislocated, whether you find it's three or not, it's just really loose. If you try to examine someone's ACL who's had an isolated ACL injury, you examine them a few hours you know, after in the emergency department, it's difficult to tell that they've torn their ACL. But when I follow them up a couple of weeks later, you know, or four weeks, six weeks out, then you can sort of, it loosens up, the swellings come down, the pain's gone, it's easier to examine. The story would make us worried that they tore their ACL, but it sometimes takes a number of weeks clinically to assess, to confirm it on physical exam. But somebody who has a dislocated knee is totally different. When you examine them, they're loose and emerge. They can't hold back. ACL, PCL are loose. So you can add an cruciate ligament to it. But when you examine them, you just feel like things are moving like they shouldn't move. But generally what happens in eMERGE is we're kind of nice people. We don't want to cause pain. We want to be efficient. And we sort of shortchange the exam and we just look at the x-ray and we say it's a soft tissue injury. And most of the time that's right. But if they actually had no cult dislocation and it's spontaneously reduced, we're sending home some with a potentially devastating the injury. Okay. So really you got to get in there and see if there's obvious loose joint, obvious laxity, any kind of obvious loose joint. You shouldn't have really in anything else except an occult knee right. dislocation. And putting a little, either it be a pillow or a couple of sheets or something under the distal femur while the patient lies down helps them relax. When they're relaxed, it actually makes for an easier exam. And if the physician, if the clinician is a little undersized, they feel like they can't control the knee. They have no idea how to lift and do anything with it. But if the leg is rested, and then all you have to do is apply a valgus or a varus force, an anterior or posteriorly directed force along the tibia. And when you do that, then you'll have a better sense that it's loose. It'll actually have more meaning for you as a clinician. I totally agree, Theron. So I think it's the gross instability. Even when you have an ACL and MCL tear, which is a very common combination that we see in sports injuries and is not considered a knee dislocation as we talk, you will not be able to see any significant gross instability. For example, in that scenario, if you put the knee in full extension and you apply valgus force, it will not open like crazy. But if a dislocated knee, you put it in an extension, you apply valgus force and the medial side opens significantly, which is dramatic, you can see it and you can feel it, that implies your PCL is probably gone at the same time. So that that is gross instability. You won't miss it. So as long as you examine the patient, varus valgus, anteroposterior, and you see evidence of significant translation or angulation on your exam, I think you can assume that your knee has been dislocated and relocated. Now, in terms of what percentage of knees that present, uh, were dislocated and have relocated. You look at different numbers in the literature. We think somewhere between 20 to 40%, depending on which study you look at. But around probably in the orthopedic community, we think 20% of knees have relocated. So, you know, that's a big number and you don't want to miss those numbers. There's two themes I just want to talk about here. One is that we all know that it's very difficult to examine a patient who comes in with a major knee injury. They just don't want to move their knee. And it's very difficult to examine them. So I just want to go over a couple of things that you can do. One of them you had mentioned already, Dr. Cial, about putting the pillow under the femur. And just that'll automatically put them into about 20 degrees. And that'll help them relax. What other things can we do to help facilitate our knee exam? So it's a great question because we sometimes feel totally disempowered, like we can't do anything. Then we walk away from the exam. It's like we don't get much information out of it, so why should we bother doing it? 
I did it again and again and again. I caused the patient pain. So then we stop doing it over time because we find it sort of a useless test sometimes. But if we keep in mind why we're doing it, it helps a lot. So lying the patient down is incredibly valuable. You need to expose and see the opposite side. The patient lying down feels more comfortable. Sitting in a chair is a useless knee exam. It's totally a useless exam. You can't get the straight leg raise uh, that Hossein mentioned before. Yeah, you won't be able to do it properly. Having them lie down helps them relax. When they're sitting up and they're looking at their leg, they're tensing up. If they lie back, put their head back, patient puts their arms at their side, it helps them relax. You know, they're sometimes afraid of what you're going to do to the knee. So by putting this sheet or pillow under the, the distal femur and flexing the knee, you're not lifting the leg. Once you lift the leg, they're worried you're going to do something painful to it. And also makes it more difficult for them. We don't like to cause them discomfort. So therefore, we stop doing that and we end up not examining as many knees as we should be. Putting local into the knee, which is a great idea and something you can do it. One other thing and to mention as well, if a patient's head injured, multi-system trauma, they come in. When you do your secondary survey, you know, it's not just feeling the knees. Lift up both the heels. And if you see one leg hyperextends, it's a swollen knee, that may be a sign they dislocated their knee as well, but they won't be able to tell you because they're head injured, maybe intubated, whatever it happens. So just as part of your exam, just lift up their heels and see if one knee hyperextends more than the other. That's a great pearl. If a knee was dislocated, it's so bloody unstable that you won't miss it as long as you touch it. You guys are thinking about ACL injuries. Yes, you're right. An ACL injury is hard to see. But if a knee was dislocated, it opens up like crazy. Okay. And, and this is Hossein's brilliance. Like he understands that the reason that we're thinking we examine the knee because we want to say ACL. And the chart will often all over the place say, you know, deceleration, swelled within an hour or two, couldn't walk, felt a pop or shift. When you hear that, like 85% chance they toured their ACL. But we want to prove it on a physical exam. We should stop worrying about trying to prove they had an ACL because that's hard to do in a merge. What we – to make sure we don't miss is the dislocation. So the reason we're examining is not to say they tore their ACL alone. The reason we're examining is to make sure they don't have an occult dislocation. That's why we're putting our hands on the knee. And the history will tell us they tore their ACL. The physical often in a merge won't tell us they tore their ACL. The physical will tell us if we think they had a dislocation or not. All right. So let's say this patient, we go back and you examine them and – their knee is totally unstable. It's pretty obvious, and you're you have a heightened suspicion that this is an occult knee dislocation. What do you do next? I'm calling a surgeon. So we'll check neurovascularly distally. You can do an ankle brachial index, but whatever I find on my assessment, we're not looking after this. I'm not being the one who's responsible. I'm not going to watch them in the hospital for six weeks. They're all being referred. If you work in a small center, we're moving them upstream somewhere where there's ortho and vascular in case they lose a pulse en route. So what about those cases that are kind of not that obvious? You're thinking, hmm, maybe this could be a dislocation. Right. I want to check neurovascular status. It seems like there's a pulse there. We know that even with a pulse present, there could be significant vascular injury. What kind of workup would these patients require? So – Basically, patients that have a dislocated knee or suspected dislocated knee, oftentimes they'll be divided into three different groups, and it really depends on their vascular assessment. They have hard signs of a vascular injury, soft signs of a vascular injury, or no signs of a vascular injury. So hard signs of a vascular injury are cold, pulseless foot, expanding hematoma in the back of the knee, and the popliteal fossa. This is a no-brainer. They have a vascular injury. They don't need an angiogram. They need a surgeon. 
Then you've got patients who have soft signs of a vascular injury or no signs. And if they have soft signs of a vascular injury, the foot's a little cooler, perhaps decreased refill, ankle brachial index, what do the pulses feel like? And if there's soft signs of an injury to the vessels, they should get an angio. There's a move afoot, no pun intended, of perhaps with patients who have no signs of a vascular injury of just watching them. If you find out at 3 in the morning they've lost their pulse, now you've got to sort of get things in place to try to sort of now mobilize a team to reconstruct someone's vascular catastrophe that's occurred, it's harder. So this is why I think it's up to the specialists to decide. And many, even with no signs of vascular injury, and Hossein, you certainly see this way more than I ever will, you know, even with there's no signs and you suspect they had a dislocated knee, they may ask for an angiogram, a CT angio, just to sort of prove it. And some may say, no, we'll just watch them hourly and see. So defer to your these opinion. are excellent points. I think because uh, we're talking about emergency management as soon as you diagnose a multi-ligamentous injury to the knee slash a dislocated knee, you have to notify the orthopedic on call for sure. That's the exact thing that the eMERGE doc should do. Now, in terms of getting to what we do, at one point we used to think that every knee dislocation needs an angiogram. And we were you know, very, very religious about that. But now the pendulum has changed. We don't think that every knee dislocation needs an angiogram. One thing that I would like the eMERGE physician to do is, if you have a frank dislocated knee, before you try to reduce it, definitely feel the pulses, see the cap refill, and then reduce it. Because if you can't give me that piece of the information that the pulses were absent prior to dislocation, it puts me at a question mark, what was the status of the vascularity of the limb before you attempt the reduction? Because you can attempt reduction and the pulses can come back. That is important. Why is it important? If you have any absence of pulses prior to a dislocation and then you reduce the dislocation, it goes back in and the pulses come back, you still need to do a vascular study. That's an indication of doing a vascular study. Now, if you do have good pulses, good cap refill, you relocate it and there's no change, those are the cases where I, as a specialist, decide based on the ABI and based on periodic monitoring whether the patient needs a CT angio or not. And I'll tell you why we don't do CT angios or angiograms on all patients anymore, because intimal tears are very common, as you can imagine, in these injuries. Intimal tear is an endothelial injury around the popliteal artery. It's very common, and you can see it on a CT angio. In the past, we used to think that all intimal tears will end up in thrombosis. But we know that this is not the case. Many of these intimal tears have a good prognosis. You just have to anticoagulate the patient. So per se, that's why we don't necessarily perform angiograms on every patient, but the criteria are very strict. You have to definitely get an ABI, and your ABI should be above 0.9. And you should not have any history of any absent pulses prior or after the dislocation. If your ABI is above 0.9, you monitor the patient for 24 hours. As long as you're sure prior to relocating, your pulses were present, you were fine. Okay? So 
ABI is important. That's why we don't necessarily perform angiogram, but you definitely have to admit that patient and assess that patient for 24 hours with serial ABIs, not just putting your hand on the pulses again. But again, that falls out of the domain of the emergency physician. So very simply put, you suspect a knee dislocation, it's going to your orthopedic surgeon. If for some reason you can't get your orthopedic surgeon, it's the middle of the night, whatever, you do an ABI. If it's over 0.9 and you've always had good pulses, then you're safe to admit and wait. However, in the occult knee dislocation situation, you don't know what the pulses were before it was relocated. Uh, So in that situation, does the same rule apply? Yes. You assume that the pulses were fine. You do assume the pulses were fine. Okay. So that's a great pearl. If you are stuck, ABI is the way to go. Over 0.9 is sort of the cutoff. But I think generally speaking, you're going to get your orthopedic surgeon involved in all of these cases. Most of these are in the context of a high-velocity injury. I know that we have knee dislocation in the context of low-velocity, which is the sports injuries. And nowadays, it's interesting. I've seen within the last two years, especially females, BMIs around 50, which we put the term of ultra-low-velocity. So that's a new term. So they come off the curb, they twist their knee and they get a dislocation. I think we've seen a couple of cases together, we me have, and Aaron. Right. And interestingly enough, we used to think that vascular injuries are mostly associated with high velocity and low velocities don't have as much vascular injury. Funny enough, the ultra low velocity tend to have higher vascular injuries than most of the other cases. So patient comes, big, heavy patient, fell off the curb, has a knee dislocation, lost their pulses. Most of them have pronial, not most of them, many of them have pronial nerve palsies associated with it. And the trauma was so minimal. So this is the new thing. You have to think about your specifically high BMI patients. Yeah. What you're saying is very consistent with a study that I read in preparing for the podcast that found that almost 50% of knee dislocations were due to low energy trauma, like slips and falls. And that the vast majority of these patients are obese patients with a BMI over 40. Uh, so that's a, a great pearl that if you've got an obese patient with even a minor mechanism, minor force, you really got to always, again, cognitive forcing, could this be a knee dislocation and check for instability. Can I ask your opinion on what you think the risk of amputation is if you had a vascular injury? If you don't pick it up within the first six to eight hours... You're pretty doomed. Right. So it's a devastating. You better call uh, your lawyer. (laughs) And this (laughs) is the reason they need to be admitted to hospital because if they're sent home and they develop the thrombosis at home, they need to be revascularized within six to eight hours. And if it's beyond that, the chance of that leg staying attached to their knee, staying attached to their body is much less. So the chance of amputation is significant. And this is the reason. We admit a lot of people with chest pain that we're a little bit worried about. We admit very few people with knee injuries that we're kind of worried about these sorts of things with. And I think our mindset has to change. Hey, baby! You know it's got to be some changes, baby. So 
So let's review what you need to know about occult knee dislocations. First off, 50% of all knee dislocations are reduced before the patient even arrives in the ED, and a significant minority of those people will have vascular injuries. So the question then becomes, when do you suspect an occult knee dislocation in the first place? Well, if on exam the knee is really loose or it has three of four knee ligament disruption, you need to suspect an occult knee dislocation. Second, if the patient reports a buckling of the knee and you see a foot drop, that's a common perineal nerve palsy, then you should suspect occult knee dislocation. Thirdly, if upon lifting up the patient's leg by their heels, the knee falls into hyperextension, that's a red flag for occult knee dislocation. And lastly, if there's a high mechanism of injury, like a dashboard injury, for example, or even if there's a low energy mechanism in an obese patient, like stepping off a curb and twisting their knee, you need to examine for an occult knee dislocation. So don't send home patients who have a big swollen knee with laxity in multiple directions on exam until you're sure they haven't had a vascular injury related to a self-reduced knee dislocation. Even if they have palpable peripheral pulses and a normal ABI of greater than 0.9, speak to your orthopedic surgeon and discuss whether to get a CT angiogram to rule out a popliteal injury immediately or to admit with serial ABIs. Next, we're going to go on to case number two. Case number two. A 30-year-old woman is crossing the street. A car turns the corner and at a very low speed hits the outside of her knee. She comes into your emergency department complaining both of medial and lateral knee pain. On valgus strain, the patient's tender at the medial knee as well as the lateral knee. Assuming that there's no other injuries here, no head injury, we're just talking the knee injury, Dr. Cl, would you x-ray this patient and why or why not? Sure. So I suspect from her discomfort and such, she's not going to be weight-bearing. She'll be quite sore for sure by her mechanism. Uh, you have to worry that it's a fracture of possibility. And since that's on the list of things, then absolutely should be getting an x-ray. All right. And specifically on the x-ray, what would you be looking for in this kind of mechanism? So one of the important things, the mechanism, again, as we've talked about, is very important. So this is a valgus stress, but this is a significant valgus stress. And in somebody, if she was playing soccer and got hit on the outside, that's a classic story for an MCL injury. When the force is greater... It's a greater force that compresses down the lateral side of the knee, and then you can get a lateral tibial plateau fracture. So even a 30-year-old with a significant force can have a lateral tibial plateau fracture. And clinically, what you find is sort of what you've outlined. She's tender on the medial side, which we expect because she's stretched her MCL. But when you examine the lateral joint line, and the key is examining the lateral joint line, is that when you examine the lateral, you find they're tender. But in eMERGE, the reason this is commonly missed we tend, as eMERGE docs, not to examine the lateral joint line. Everything happens medially. It's medial meniscus. It's MCL. The lateral joint line, uh, I think this is your line, Hossein, that you taught me years ago. The lateral joint line is like the dark corner of the knee exam. Like we just don't go there. So even a phrase like posterolateral corner of the knee, rarely is it picked up in eMERGE because we don't examine the lateral side at all of the knee. So this is an important finding is lateral joint line pain after a valgus stress is a red flag for a lateral tibial plateau fracture. Why are lateral tibial plateau fractures more common than medial? 
because the lateral side of the knee bears 40% of the weight. So the medial side bears 60% of the weight. It's stronger. The lateral side of the knee overall is more prone to fractures. Therefore, lateral tibial plateaus are more common than medial tibial plateau fractures. Now, in the younger population, when uh, a fracture happens, you usually see splitting of the lateral plateau. So the lateral plateau, there's a fracture, and the lateral plateau splits. That is hard to miss, actually. That is hard to miss. Now, in the older population, when this happens, because the bone is soft, usually the articular surface only gets depressed and there might not be splitting of the fracture. That is easier to miss. That is very easy to miss. That segues perfectly into what specifically are you looking for on the x-ray? So overall, when you look at the imaging, look at your subchondral line, which is the subchondral sclerosis, usually the lateral tibial plateau is higher than the medial tibial plateau. And you can see both on the AP and on the lateral plane specifically. If you see that subchondral sclerosis is not congruent anymore and the lateral side is lower than the medial side, then that is suspicious. Subchondral sclerosis should be higher on the lateral side normally. Yes. And if it's lower, that's a depressed lateral tibial plateau fracture. And lateral tibial plateaus are underrepresented on x-rays. They're hard to see, can be subtle, can be occult. Adding oblique films is important too, not just doing an AP in the lateral, but if you add the obliques, it gives you an extra little view of the tibial plateau and four views are better than two. And with something that's subtle, the extra views can often be helpful. All right. Excellent. Let's say, let's say you look at the four views and the subchondral sclerosis looks okay. It's not depressed, but you still, based on your history and your physical exam, suspect that it could be a lateral tibial plateau fracture. Are those the kinds of patients that you would send for a CT or immobilize them and have them follow up with your orthopedic colleagues to consider a CT? How would you handle that situation? So from an eMERGE point of view, I, they're both reasonable options. If you're going to immobilize and have them follow up, they have to be non-weight-bearing. So that means a posterior slab, extended above knee, uh, and followed up. But you can imagine if it's a 75-year-old and you're going to send them home with a long leg slab and crutches – that if they didn't have a fracture before, a week later, they certainly might have a fracture just, <laughs> just with that. Yeah. Right. So that's not made up the safest option. But if you don't have CT available to you because they're 400 kilometers away, then that may be what you have to do. And you may just keep them mostly on bed rest and then reassessed or moved upstream. If it's a 35-year-old, you may be more comfortable sending them out. But also if it's a 35-year-old and they have a lateral tibial plateau fracture, that could be a more significant injury. And you've got to be more concerned about that. So that may be one that UCT. But another kind of saying is like where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit. And if you sit somewhere where the CT scanner is 50 feet down the hall, you'll probably do the CT. And if the CT scanner is 250 kilometers away, I guess you're not. But with a negative x-ray, it doesn't mean they don't have a lateral tibial plateau fracture. It's all about history and physical. The thing that I see commonly is that in the emergency department, whoever has a knee injury they stick in a knee immobilizer, i.e. a Zimmer splint for them. I've seen it. They've done it in 90-year-olds. And a 90-year-old putting a Zimmer splint on a 90-year-old with a knee injury is disastrous. It's similar to a 90-year-old who has a very stable C-spine fracture and they put a Philadelphia collar on her. 
You can kill that patient, actually. The same story, you won't kill a patient with a Zimmer splint, but the patient will become really, really immobile. It really doesn't help them at all. I saw recently a patient, she was around her 90s, had a Zimmer splint put on. It was put on so tight, when she came to the fracture clinic, she had a proneal nerve palsy. It was pressing right over her prominent fibular neck. So be careful about using these knee immobilizers. You don't need them all the time. You can just give them a protective weight bearing with a walker and send them home and let them follow up. You don't necessarily need to put them in a knee immobilizer all the time. So look at your patient before you make that decision. It's an excellent point you make. Uh, I'll tell you, though, when you talk about not being life-threatening, I was giving a talk at a conference, and one of the other speakers, being on your podcast, Anton, and he works at St. Michael's Hospital. And he was telling me about the sickest patient he saw just recently was a 37-year-old lady who came in in shock. Her blood pressure was in the 70s, and she had a massive PE. And why did she have a massive PE? And she got thrombolysed in the emergency department. The reason was is because two weeks earlier, she had a soft tissue injury to the knee, and she was put into a knee immobilizer. And she actually had a massive saddle embolus from a knee immobilizer. So absolutely the local reasons of the knee are being stiff and weak. We tend to sort of over-immobilize the knee. But there occasionally, rarely, can be systemic consequences of it too. All right. So if the, if the listeners can just hold on to their seats for a little bit, we're going to go through the exact indications for a knee immobilizer later in the podcast. Before we go away from this case, Dr. Median, when you see these lateral tibial plateau fractures that are missed in your clinic – what kind of complications, like how do these patients end up doing? Like why, why is it so important that we diagnose these early? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, it comes to surgical indications for lateral tibial plateau fractures. What are the absolute indications for surgery on lateral tibial plateau fracture. So there are many variables over there. We know that if you have a compound fracture, for sure that has an indication, no brainer. If you have an associated compartment syndrome, that's a definitely an indication. If you have associated vascular compromise, that those are indications. Now let's come to the fact that which apart from the case of those that I mentioned, which other cases need surgical intervention? And if you miss them, you might compromise their care and you might compromise their prognosis. So in terms, if it is displaced and is split, then you have an unstable lateral compartment. So when it's unstable, then the patient can't wait for it. So you've got to fix it. So coming back to the cases that are occult, because the other ones, they're not going to be missed. We know that. Coming back to the cases that are occult and are missed, the story comes to the age and how much articular depression we can accept. That's the major issue. So, and I can tell you, as orthopedic surgeon, we're all over the map, okay? We, we don't have much consensus on that, whether two millimeters is acceptable of articular depression or five millimeters or even 10 millimeters based on age. You know, it can be... Dealer's choice, you look at your patient's profile for sure before you make that decision. So for all the patients that we can see a lateral tibial plateau fracture on x-ray, that's a call to orthopedics from the emergency department during day hours. If it's in the middle of the night, we might call the, the orthopedic surgeon in the morning, but that patient needs to see an orthopedic surgeon soon. What about for the patients who have a normal x-ray, but we still suspect a lateral tibial plateau fracture? How should we manage those patients from the emergency department? 
you should protect their weight bearing, meaning that they you should send them home with a walker and tell them to be touch weight bearing without putting weight on their extremity. Okay, so for the older patient, you want to avoid the zimmer, you want to avoid the knee mobilizer. They can go home with a walker and touch weight bearing if they can tolerate. And the young patient? In the young patient, if it's rare to see occult injuries of the tibial plateau in young patients. It's not very common. But in the young patients, again, the same principle. What I'm trying to say is something that is occult is not unstable, okay? Something that is occult, when you, you have a hard time seeing depression of the articular surface, it might be a millimeter or two only depressed, that is not an unstable injury. So you don't necessarily need to immobilize it. Range of motion has no problem in the context of a stable injury to the cartilage surface. It's actually good for it. So we don't tend to immobilize those. We just tend to treat them with protective weight-bearing. Okay, so protective weight bearing, no immobilization for most patients that you're going to see that you suspect a tibial plateau fracture, but the x-ray is normal. Exactly. I, okay. And I guess the other option approach. is to get a CT scan. Uh, and then from there, if you confirm that there is a tibial plateau fracture, give the orthopedic surgeon a call. So let's review lateral tibial plateau fractures. For patients with a valgus-type injury, like the pedestrian getting bumped in the side of the knee by a car that we presented, or a soccer player getting hit in the lateral knee who you're thinking MCL, but they have lateral pain as well, think tibial plateau fracture and make sure to examine the lateral joint line carefully. Even if the x-ray doesn't show that subtle depression of the tibial plateau, the patient should be in protective weight-bearing using a walker with toe walking in the older person or a knee immobilizer in a younger person and very close orthopedic follow-up. Or if you have the option, go straight to CT. And if you see a depressed tibial plateau fracture of more than a millimeter or two or a split displaced fracture, refer directly to ortho in the ED. Next, we're gonna dive into extensor mechanism injuries. Case number three, a 45-year-old man who has a history of diabetes was recently on ciprofloxacin for suspected pyelonephritis. He's recently decided to play soccer with his teenage son three times a week. He comes into the ED after slipping on the soccer field, stumbling, and then not being able to weight bear due to severe left knee pain. He's unable to extend his knee against resistance, and he's having a lot of trouble performing a straight leg raise. On exam, you also notice a knee effusion, but there's no joint line tenderness, and his ligaments all seem to be intact with a negative Lockman test. So, Dr. Ciel, what else are you going to look for in physical exam to help you in this case? Or like, are you done? The patient has a simple knee sprain, give him rest, ice, compression, elevation, rice instructions, and send him home. Right. So, presuming his x-rays were taken and are negative in this case, it's another one of those cases where... Negative x-ray doesn't mean just a simple soft tissue injury, and one always has to keep in mind whether there could be an extensor mechanism disruption. Another uncommon injury, but commonly missed by generalists and by us in eMERGE. If they straight leg raise and they can do it easily, their extensor mechanism, meaning how the quads attaches to the tibia, is intact. If it's disrupted, it could be disrupted either through the patellar tendon, through the patella, but that would be shown as a fracture, or above the patella through the quads. So a straight leg raise is a very important test. 
Uh, one little pearl, when we often do it, we do it with the patient lying down. And there's an iliotibial band, which is the tensor fasciolata. It's kind of a unique muscle because sometimes it can help you as an extensor. And if your knee's fully extended, from full extension to about 30 degrees of flexion, the IT band is a knee extensor. And then you can sometimes get a false negative, meaning they can straight leg raise, but it's really not as convincing as the other side. You can sometimes have a quads rupture and still be able to get the heel off the bed. And that's because they're using the IT band to support as another extensor. And the way you eliminate that is to have the patient sit over the side of the bed. And once the knee is flexed, the IT band now serves as a knee flexor. It's no longer an extensor and you repeat the straight leg raise. And now if they can't straight leg raise, now you've isolated the quad. You don't have the advantage of the IT band assisting and it's a better test to do. But when we examine patients, they should be lying in a bed. And as a screening test, if you just get them to straight leg raise, that's fine. Wow. So that's a great pearl. So to increase the accuracy of your straight leg raise, you have someone uh, who has a significant injury. They seem to be able to just barely be able to straight leg raise. If you're still suspicious, turn them 90 degrees, leg over the edge of the bed and try straight leg raise there. Right. Okay. The other thing that sometimes fools you is that when you ask them to straight leg raise, they turn their foot out. And they use their hip adductors as opposed to using their knee extensor. So make sure their their toes are pointing towards the, the ceiling so they're not cheating. Otherwise, it looks like they've got a straight leg raise, but they don't. And as was mentioned earlier, pain is a muscle inhibitor. So because they can't straight leg raise doesn't mean for sure they've disrupted their extensor mechanism. There may be other things that are causing it. So it's not 100% sensitive. It's not 100% specific, but it's a heck of a starting point. And if you start thinking about these things, you're, again, much less likely to miss them. One point I wanted to mention is that anyone who's got an extensor mechanism rupture cannot walk into your office without any support or any immobilizer. They're on a stretcher. We're two-legged animals. We need our extensors to walk. So if you've got an extensor tendon rupture, you can't come into your office walking and say, I've got an extensor tendon rupture. Okay, It's probably not a complete rupture. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing, like anything else, extensor mechanism ruptures can be associated with other injuries. And it's been you know, documented in the context of extensor mechanism ruptures with knee dislocation, extensor mechanism ruptures with other associated injuries can happen. That's the second thing. The third thing is history is very important, as is age is important. When do you get extensor mechanism ruptures? You don't get it. Extensor mechanism ruptures usually doesn't happen in the context of quads ruptures, it doesn't happen below the age of 40. So quads ruptures usually happen above the age of 40. Patellar tendon ruptures usually in the younger age group. So that's a good thing to differentiate. And overall, as Aaron was pointing out, it's either the patellar tendon, it's either a patellar fracture, or it's an, a quad stir. That's the extensor mechanism disruption. Now, don't forget, patellar fractures are six times more common than tendinous injuries. So they are still the most common ones that disrupt your extensor mechanism. So that's something to remember. The other thing is in examination, if you feel a gap and the patient can perform a straight leg raise, that's done. You, you know you're diagnosed. You don't need any other ancillary tests. So when you say feel a gap, let's just uh, dig into that. So that's the sort of typical divot, just proximal to the patella. Yeah, if it's a quads, you feel it proximal to the patella. If it's a patella 
tendon rupture, usually the patella rides high and you can still feel a gap at the distal end of the patella too. It's usually at the inferior pole. Okay, so in terms of the physical exam, they probably won't be able to straight leg raise and they won't be able to walk because their whole extensor mechanism is gone. You'll feel for a divot proximal to the patella. You can look you know, from the side and actually sometimes see a divot proximal to the patella. Is there anything else on, on physical exam? If the quads is ruptured, the patella sometimes slides a little down. That's called patella baja, a low-riding patella. And as, as Hossein mentioned, if the patellar tendon is ruptured, the quads retracts, it pulls the patella up higher, and then compared to the opposite side, you may notice that the patella sits higher than the opposite side. Absolutely. And we'll get on to how to look for that on the x-ray in a minute. But before we do, why is it so important to diagnose a quads rupture in the first place? We know that if they have a quads rupture, they need surgery because it's not going to heal. It's not like the Achilles tendon where you can treat it non-surgically nowadays, okay? You have a quads rupture. If you don't repair it, it is going to have significant consequences. Now, you want to repair it earlier rather than later because what happens is the quads contract. Then if you let it go for a few weeks and you diagnose it delayed, surgery would be much more difficult because approximating the ends would be far more difficult because the quads have contracted proximally. So therefore, our preference is to get to quads and patellar tendon rupture within a week or so. So that's why we want to know about them as soon as possible so we can get them on the list. Yeah, that's and, that's a key emergency department diagnosis then, right. one that's easy to miss but needs to be seen within a week. Yeah, it's another one of those uncommon injuries commonly missed. In literature that I've seen, it's like 20 to 25% of them are missed by the eMERGE doctor who sees them. And also if the quads is left alone, it's just atrophying. And the more it atrophies, once you reattach it, it takes longer for the patients to recover, I'm sure. So let's move on to the x-ray for these. I mean, sometimes these will be totally occult on x-ray, but let's say we suspect a quads rupture or a patella tendon rupture in a younger patient. What are we specifically looking for on x-ray? So a couple of things. Uh, it's a significant soft tissue injury. So associated with that, you can have avulsions. So where can the avulsion occur? If it's a quads rupture, you can avulse the superior pole of the patella. Some patients have an enthesophyte. It's like a quadriceps spur, and they can actually break off the spur. Most of the time, though, it's a purely muscular injury. It's a soft tissue injury, and you actually won't see anything uh, bony-wise. But again, if the patella sits low, that's called patella baja. And then on the lateral view... What you would do is you'd look at the height of the patella. You, you would actually measure the height of the patella on the lateral view, and you compare it to the height from the inferior pole of the patella to the tibial tuberosity, which is the length of the patellar tendon. And if it's low, it would be less than 0.8. So meaning the tendon is less than 80% of the height of the patella. If it's high, if it's pulled up, that's called patella alta, like altitude, like sitting high. If the patella is pulled up, the patellar tendon is more than 20% greater in length than the patella. And that's greater than 1.2. So a normal ratio, it actually doesn't really matter which is the numerator, which is the denominator. The ratio is 0.8 to 1.2. And if the patellar tendon is lower in height, that's a low-riding patella. And if it's higher, that's a high-riding patella. That's very academic that Aaron is mentioning. It's called the insult salvati ratio. Is 
to make it easier for the eMERGE physicians, usually the patella is one finger breadth above the joint line. Look at your joint line. One finger breadth above the joint line is where the patella sits. Okay? It's simple. If you see it higher than that, you probably have patella alta. If you see it lower than that, you probably have patella baja. But anyways, many patients have constitutional baja or alta. It's just a help for your diagnosis. All right. So looking at the x-ray, if you suspect one of these extensor mechanism of in- injuries, you're going to be looking at the patella itself, see if there's any avulsion fractures. And we want to know if it's a high-riding patella or a low-riding yeah. patella, which is patella alta, like altitude. I like that. High-riding and Baja. Like uh, the Baja Flats in Utah. Yeah, or yeah, or Baja Mexico is south of us, nice. at least, in Canada. California so. Baja. That's what they call it. <laughs> Yeah. So Baja is south of Canada, at least. So we can think of it that way, just to remember the names. And then I like the quick look screen is the patella should be one finger breadth away from the joint line of the knee. And if it's either above that, then it's an Alta. If it's below that, it's a, it's a Baja. And if you really want to check, then looking at the ratio of less than 0.8 or more than 1.2, of the, the ratio of the length of the patella versus the length of the, uh, the tendon. And the other thing I wanted to mention here comes to the value of ultrasound because this is, I think, something that we should talk about. It is important. Number one, I think the ultrasound in the knee has only one value, and that is to assess the extensor mechanism. So please don't order ultrasounds for internal derangements like meniscal tears, ACL tears. They're non-valuable. There's one single value for ultrasound in the knee, and that's extensor mechanism assessment. Now, again, depending on the technician and the radiologist, it doesn't have 100% accuracy, but it at least has an 80% accuracy to pick up a tear. It's usually the problem is it is over- Red. So meaning that many times the radiologist says that the extensor mechanism is fully torn and you go in and you don't see any tear. So it can be a problem, but the only value of ultrasound in the knee is assessing the extensor mechanism. I think that's a point that we have to make because we see so many ultrasounds being ordered, both me and Aaron, for uh, knee pain and internal derangements. And it's probably a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. So we we had talked about how we should avoid knee immobilizers for our usual soft tissue injury of the knee. This, a quadriceps tendon rupture, is one of those things where a knee immobilizer is indicated. Could we just talk a little bit about soft tissue injuries that do require a knee immobilizer? Oh, this is one of them, 100%. Yeah. Because, and, but uh, this is in temporizing, though, until such time as they get to the surgeon. Otherwise, their knee will buckle every time they walk. But this isn't just a mobilizer and go get followed up. This is a mobilizer until you see Dr. Median so he can repair your quads rupture. If you don't immobilize it, they'll be immobile. That's the problem. This is the knee immobilizer that lets them become mobile and walk. As soon as you give them a <laughs> knee mobile, they can get up and walk, right? <laughs> because you stabilize their extensor mechanism and they put, you put their knee in extension. And that's how they can walk. Okay, so suffice to say that really the only time for soft tissue injuries, the only time that they need to be in a knee immobilizer is for an extensor injury. So first time patellar yeah. dislocation in eMERGE 
we would usually put them into a neomobilizer because we don't want the patella to be sliding out laterally. Ideally, they get into a brace that allows uh, stabilization of the patella and movement of the knee. But emergency departments don't have that. So there are patellar stabilizing braces, which we'll prescribe in follow-up. But a first-time patellar dislocation uh, will often end up with a neomobilizer. We way overuse neomobilizers, absolutely. If I can go off on a little tangent, I will suggest that uh, I tell people that the neomobilizer in the emergency department is similar to a Moxel in the walk-in clinic in the sense that it's way easier to give the patient in the walk-in clinic a Moxel 500 TID and go, as opposed to explaining why it's viral, why you don't need antibiotics, side effects, yada, yada, yada. In the emergency department, it's way easier to give a patient a neomobilizer and say, go see somebody, as opposed to there's good pain, there's bad pain, get your knee moving, work on range of motion, activate your quads. All those things take a few minutes, but they're vitally important to a patient. And the knee is very prone to stiffness. So when we immobilize a knee, most of us in Emerge don't see them in follow-up, but after 10 days, if they didn't move the knee at all, they have a very stiff knee. We've seen 20-year-olds who the most they can flex their knee is 30 degrees. Their quads have already atrophied. They atrophy about 10% a week when they're immobilized. And if we leave that alone, they won't get back strength until they get back range. And when it's stiff, it's going to take a number of weeks just to get range. So we tend to way over-immobilize, absolutely. For the acutely swollen knee, it's painful, it's sore, it's swollen. We'll sometimes give them a neomobilizer out of eMERGE for the ACL, MCL, you know, meniscal injury. But we'll tell them, take the knee out, take the immobilizer off, get your knee moving. Don't leave it on all the time. Sit in a chair. If it hurts to walk, by all means, you can put the immobilizer on and walk. But then take it off when you're not weight-bearing. Sit in a chair, bend your knee, extend it, activate your quads. Don't just let it sit in one position. So neomobilization is actually preferred in certain cases. What it's not, though, is it's not preferred in every case. And we tend to overuse it in the eMERGE. So what do we need to know about extensor mechanism injuries like quadriceps tendon rupture? Well, quads and patella tendon ruptures are often misdiagnosed as simple soft tissue injuries. In the patient under 40 who can't weight bear and can't do a straight leg raise, think patella tendon rupture and look and feel for that infrapatellar gap. And then for the patient who's over 40 who can't weight bear and can't do a straight leg raise, think quads tendon rupture and look for a suprapatellar gap. Now, how can you make your SLR more useful? To maximize the accuracy of your straight leg raise, make sure the patient isn't externally rotating their leg using their hip abductors to raise the leg up. And try your straight leg raise with the patient sitting on the edge of the bed so that the IT band is taken out of the picture as well. Now, an easy way to determine the presence of quadriceps or patella tendon rupture on x-ray, that is to determine if they have patella baja or patella alta, is that the patella is normally one finger breadth above the joint line. And so any significant deviation from that should increase your suspicion for either patella baja or patella alta. Now, what about the use of ultrasound for knee injuries? Extensor mechanism injuries are probably the only real indication for a knee ultrasound for knee injuries in the ED. Forget about ultrasound for suspected meniscal tears or ligament tears. They don't really help our surgeons, and they're a wasted resource. And extensor mechanism injuries, as well as first-time patella dislocations, are probably the only real indications for a knee immobilizer for soft tissue injuries of the knee. 
A Zimmer splint for an extensor mechanism injury will allow the patient to walk until they get their surgery done, ideally within one week to avoid retraction of the tendon. Next, we're going to talk about a very common injury, the ACL tear. A 25-year-old woman presents to your ED after injuring her knee playing basketball. When you dig deep into the history to get that ever-so-important mechanism of injury, she's able to tell you that she planted her foot and rotated her left leg following a jump, and then she fell to the floor. She had to be carried off the court. She complains of severe pain in the left knee and says she can't put weight on it. She says she heard a pop as she planted. On exam, her left knee is swollen with a belaudable effusion and very tender to touch diffusely. She's unable to extend completely and can only flex to about 45 degrees. What are the features of the story that are key in helping you make the diagnosis of an ACL tear? First, it's the history. Again, as we talked primarily, you look at the mechanism of injury. Most ACL injuries are sports injuries, okay? And most of them are non-contact. They happen by individually. There's no contact with another player or anything going on. So this is a good point. And this specific patient of yours is a hyperextension valgus type injury that has happened to the knee and uh, is one of the mechanisms of injury that can happen in the context of ACL associated with some deceleration, as we know. The other pearl is that in ACL injuries that happen, usually the patient cannot continue playing the sports. Many other soft tissue injuries, they get up and they go and continue playing. But with ACL injury, they're usually taken off the court. That's the other thing. The other finding is that usually with ACL injuries, the knee swells up right away. ACL is a very vascular structure. While in meniscal injuries, it usually takes a few hours before the basically knee swells up. So this is another pearl. Again, having a female patient with the mechanism of injury, hearing the pop, swelling, unable to weight bear, all these are pointing to the fact that you probably are having an ACL rupture or ACL tear. You you can definitely have associated injuries with it. Again, the major principle is to examine them, whether you pick the ACL or you don't pick the ACL and they emerge, that might not be a, as important as you miss a multi-ligamentous injury to the knee. But that's what we, want, we don't want to miss, per se. It's sort of a telephone diagnosis. Deceleration injury, shift or pop, swelled within an hour or two, didn't continue playing, 85% chance that's probably an ACL tear without even examining them. And many times I'll see in the fracture clinic, those details are on the chart. And then when the eMERGE physician tries to examine the knee, makes an attempt to examine, everything feels stable and is reported as a knee sprain. All right. So ACL is a diagnosis that we make pretty much on history. And the physical exam can be really challenging. I just want to talk a little bit about the physical exam, even though sometimes we can't really get those findings that are typical of an ACL tear that you do find a few weeks later. What do you want to look for specifically on physical exam so, for these patients? So in the eMERGE, really, all you basically will have access to is a Lockman. Bending the knee 20 degrees and trying to bring it forward and see. Having the patient lie down, having the pillow or sheets under the distal femur is very helpful. 
an anterior drawer is at 90 degrees. You take someone who just injured the knee and you flex them 90 degrees, they're way too sore. They're very uncomfortable. Their hamstrings will never relax enough so that we could slide their tibia forward on it. So that's an extremely low yield test. And then the final test we would do is something called a pivot shift in follow-up. But a pivot shift is also requires muscle relaxation. So the knee actually subluxes. And then when you apply the pivot shift, it reduces it. But they're never relaxed enough in Emerge. I've never even tried one in Emerge. Okay, so practically speaking, it's the Lockman. And again, just to go over this, you flex the knee 20 degrees. And that can be done simply by putting the pillow under the femur that you described before. You hold the thigh in one hand. And then you hold the lower leg in You the come other. in behind, just sort of, you know, the proximal calf, proximal yeah. gastrox. Uh, with, your, with your top hand, you're just over top of the patella, stabilizing the femur. With your bottom hand, you just gently slide forward. If you're not familiar with the Lockman test, we'll have a 30-second video on the blog post for you to check out. Examine your joint lines. Make sure you palpate the medial and lateral joint lines. Many of these have associated meniscal injuries, so you don't want to miss that. If you are suspicious of a sprain of the MCL associated with it, you can just put your hand on the MCL, specifically over the medial epicondyle of the femur. Many of them have tenderness over there, and you can pick up associated MCL injuries with them. And the last thing you look at, many of these injuries are associated with locking. So it doesn't necessarily mean that an ACL tear that has inability to fully extend necessarily has a meniscal tear, but there is a possibility. A locked knee can happen because of an ACL tear in by itself, an ACL tear with a meniscal tear, or because of a meniscal tear, or because of a loose body. So you don't want to miss that, although I know that we're going to talk about that later, but this is something that you want to pick up during your primary exam. Okay, so absolutely. So a locked knee can happen with an ACL tear or a meniscal tear, or you can have both of those injuries together. Sure. Sure. Um, That actually segues nicely, you know, looking for other things when you think the patient has an ACL tear. You know, this is the classic cognitive error of, you know, you make a diagnosis, let's say you make the diagnosis of ACL tear from history, then you just stop there and send the patient off. Uh, you know, we want to be looking for that second injury. So when you do get an x-ray for this patient who can't weight bear, what are you looking for on the x-ray? In pediatric cases, uh, we often talk about in kids, ligaments generally tend to be stronger than bone. So in pediatric cases, you're more likely to have an avulsion of the tibial spine, which is the insertion of the ACL on the tibia and on the AP view of the knee. You can see a little pulled off piece. There's also something called a second fracture, and a second fracture is a vertically oriented avulsion off the lateral capsule of the proximal tibia. Seen only in about maybe 5% of ACL injuries, but if you see it, it's thought to be 75 to 100% specific for an ACL tear. So look for it. If you don't see it, you can't say they haven't torn their ACL by any stretch, because 19 out of 20 ACL tears will not have a second on x-ray. But if you see it, it's a pretty good sign they've torn their ACL. Okay, so we had talked about how a tibial spine fracture, that's going to change your management because that patient you are going to put into a knee immobilizer. So for your typical ACL, they don't need a knee immobilizer and they can follow up. The tibial spine fracture, you want to put them into a knee immobilizer, full extension. What about the Sagan fracture? Is that going to change your management? A Sagan fracture is just an evulsion of the lateral capsule. And it doesn't change your management. It just uh, heads you towards an ACL injury. 
Okay, it just helps you confirm yeah, helps to you confirm, confirm the diagnosis. Okay. So, Dr. Median, what if this 25-year-old young woman was actually a 12-year-old girl playing basketball, same case, similar mechanism, going up for a jump? How would that change your approach to this case? Well, first of all, it's a 12-year-old, so the growth plates are open. So we have to be cognizant of the fact that fractures are more common than ligamentous injuries. So in the context of the 12-year-old, the differential diagnosis can be fractures around the physis. The other diagnosis can be avulsion of the tibial spine, as we've talked about. The third diagnosis can be patellar dislocation or subluxation that usually goes back into its groove spontaneously. And lastly, yes, Patients can still get ACL tears at that age group, but not as common as older age groups. So these are the four things that come to my mind for a 12-year-old patient with the same mechanism. Okay, so a patella dislocation that spontaneously reduces, how, how do you sort that out? Like sometimes they'll come in with this, this similar story that kind of sounds like ACL, but it actually ends up being a patella dislocation and you're going to manage them differently because the patella dislocation you're going to be immobilizing if it's a first-time patella dislocation, whereas an ACL, you're not going to be immobilizing them. I understand that a patella dislocation is often misdiagnosed as an ACL injury. What are some of the clues that can help us make the right diagnosis? Many of these patients do have a history of anterior knee pain from before. That's one single clue, although not all of them. Many of them do have a history of anterior knee pain. The other thing is in physical examination, there are a few points that usually help me personally. Whenever you've got a patellar dislocation, usually almost always your medial patellofemoral ligament ruptures and the patella goes out laterally. So if you put your hand on the medial aspect of the patella up and down, they usually are very tender. That's one clue that helps. Although in an ACL, there is no tenderness on the medial aspect of the patella when you palpate it. The other thing is, again, as Aaron pointed out, if you put a small sheet underneath their knee and hold their patella and try to bring it laterally, they become very apprehensive. It's called the apprehension test because they're worried that you're going to re-dislocate it. So you look at their face, and that's the next thing that you become worried about. One, one pearl about patella dislocation, if you have any suspicion of patella dislocation, apart from an AP and a lateral view, please take a skyline view because you want to see the undersurface of the patella to see if you can see any osteochondral fragments. Just don't limit it to an AP and a lateral view. That's a great pearl. So just to review there, some of the key diagnoses that we should be thinking about when we have a patient who presents with something that sounds like an ACL is a patella dislocation. And make sure you get your patella views, your skyline view in that situation. And you can sort that out with the apprehension test and also with medial patella tenderness. And then the other one is a tibial spine fracture. And those tend to happen in younger patients. And so we should get x-rays for that. I mean, this kind of brings up the Ottawa knee rules. You know, this patient wasn't able to weight bear. So they fail the Ottawa knee rules and get an x-ray. Dr. CL, do you find the Ottawa knee rules to be useful? So, no. My blunt answer is no. I don't find that the Ottawa knee rules help me at all. 
the auto knee rules, I think they said they actually had like 80% of patients beforehand. And then once they instituted the rules, it's down to 57% of patients. So you can relatively, they could save like 27% of knee x-rays or something to that effect. And to be honest with you, I think in my practice beforehand, patients that came in with knee injuries, I wouldn't have x-rayed 80% of those patients beforehand. So therefore, if I reduce it, I don't think the benefit is as great to me. So I'll x-ray patients who I think have a fracture or I think have a soft tissue injury that I think I might see on the x-ray. So if it's suspected extensor mechanism disruption, ACL tear, fractures for the reasons that we've talked about, they'll get an x-ray. But I don't actually think of the auto knee rules when I examine the knee. All right. In terms of the ED management, uh, knowing that these patients, the vast majority of them, unless they're a professional athlete, will end up getting some physio. Uh, you're going to want to see them like a week out after the swellings come down. It's going to be pretty conservative management for most of them. What's the ED management, an ACL terror, a suspected ACL injury? So what we think of, we think of the goals of rehab, really what you want to do is a great experience if the residents are listening, if you have a chance, go work with a good physiotherapist and go see what they do. And the goals of rehab really are to get rid of pain, get rid of swelling, get back range of motion, get back strength, proprioception, and go back to sport. So what you want to do, though, is have some form of compression. A tensor bandage works, but the patella is extra articular, and you can make a little foam horseshoe or even out of an ABD pad, you put a little keyhole, like a little hole for the patella, and you can just put that around the patella and then put a tensor over top, and now you get much better compression of the knee. When the knee is less swollen, you get better range of motion. When you have better range of motion, you maintain your strength, and then you can walk better. And all these are little small steps. If that can be done out of Emerge, great. If not, then in a week or 10 days, we'll explain to them what needs to be done. We encourage them to get the knee moving. Even if it hurts a lot to walk, then just sit in the chair, bend your knee. When you're lying in bed, put a couple of pillows under your knee and just activate your quads. Again, just to get things moving so they don't get too stiff. The knee being a relative hinge joint is very prone to stiffness. All right, so early range of motion exercises. And they can be weight-bearing as tolerated. I would guess that the biggest pitfall you guys see are... Patients with ACL injuries who are immobilized and or just told not to wait bare, right. given crutches, and they just atrophy. And, and given the immobilizer. Like when they're given the immobilizer without instruction, and that's another sort of a pet peeve with a lot of sports medicine type folks, is that we say the, the phrase rice. Rest, ice, compression, elevation. And when a patient hears the word rest, what they hear is don't move it, don't use it, don't do anything. And most of the time when we say rest, we really mean restricted activity. And then the onus is on us to explain to the patient how to restrict the activity. If they have a undisplaced patellar fracture, if they have a first-time patellar dislocation, the restricted activity may be don't flex the knee. But for ACL, MCL, meniscal, these soft tissue injuries that we're not concerned about, the restricted activity is exactly as Dr. Median said. Let pain be your guide. Get up, walk around, try to get it moving. All right, so the diagnosis of ACL tear is usually made on history alone, while the physical exam in the ED is usually non-contributory because the patient really can't tolerate that provocative testing. Most ACL tears are non-contact sports injuries, and the mechanism is usually an acute, sudden deceleration, a twist of the knee with the tibia pushed anteriorly, usually with a valgus stress. 70% report a pop, and some report buckling or giving out. They usually can't weight bear, 
And practically speaking, the Lockman test is the only useful physical exam maneuver for assessment of ACL because the anterior drawer and pivot tests, which are traditionally used for diagnosing ACL and used later on once the swelling and pain has settled down, they cause way too much pain in the acute phase for the patient to be able to tolerate them. When you do an x-ray for a suspected ACL tear, in pediatric patients, you want to look for a tibial spine fracture, which will change your management because those patients will require immobilization and extension. And in an adult patient with suspected ACL tear, look for a Sagan fracture, which will confirm the diagnosis of ACL, but it won't change your management really. So how do you manage an ACL tear? Well, the first thing to know is no knee immobilizers. The patient should be weight-bearing as tolerated with early range of motion exercises. And one trick of the trade that Dr. Cial pointed out was to cut out a circle the size of the patient's patella from an ABD pad and place the remaining ABD pad over the patient's knee with a tensor bandage to hold it in place for improved compression of the knee. Remember that RICE, remember that the R in RICE stands for restricted activity, not rest. For ACL, MCL, meniscal injuries, instruct the patient to let pain be their guide, weight bearers tolerated, with early range of motion exercises to avoid knee stiffness and a delay to normal activity. Now, how do you differentiate a spontaneously reduced patella dislocation from an ACL injury? Well, patients with a spontaneously reduced patella dislocation will often have a history of anterior knee pain. And usually the medial patellofemoral ligament ruptures, and so you'll usually find tenderness in this area. And don't forget the apprehension test for spontaneously reduced patella dislocation. With the patient's knee flexed at 20 degrees, grasp the patella and start to move it laterally. If the patient's really apprehensive when you do this, then they have a positive apprehension test. And for a patient with a suspected patella dislocation, on x-ray, you should order a patella skyline view and look for osteochondral fragments under the patella. On to the last case. A 30-year-old woman was playing volleyball when she went into a sort of squatting position and she had a sudden onset of knee pain that stopped her from continuing to play. She's able to weight bear with a limp in the ED She doesn't have much swelling, if any, but complains bitterly when you attempt to extend her knee fully. So this patient's very different than our last ACL patient. What do you think the most likely diagnosis is and what in the story makes you think about that diagnosis? So when she's in a squatted position and turns, we always think with a twisting injury, could it be meniscal? The other thing as well is when the knee's about 30 degrees flex and they rotate, the patella, that's when sort of the patella tends to go out. So 30 isn't unusual to have a patellar dislocation. Certainly it's more common in a teenager, uh, but it's not uncommon to see someone in their 20s, early 30s who may have it as well. So that would certainly still be on my differential. When I would see her and emerge and examine her, you'd look for swelling. First time patellar dislocation should be reasonably swollen. If it's a meniscal pathology, it may be delayed in its onset. So it may be hours later, they may have the injury one night and the next day their knee becomes much more swollen. And that's more typical of inflammatory conditions as opposed to blood, which takes an hour or two. So if it swells within an hour or two, I'm more worried about it being a hemarthrosis, being blood, which is more suggestive of ACL or a fracture. Delayed swelling makes it less likely. Look for joint line tenderness, which is very important. We'll always do straight leg raise. All those simple, still look, you know, the joint above and below, all those principles are there. And then you want to see if they can actually fully extend their knee. 
And that's an important finding. So we tend not to spend too much time on an eMERGE. It's another thing that if we miss it and the patient has what's called a locked knee, which it's a bit of a misnomer, a locked door is a door that doesn't open or close. And most of us who are non-orthopedic surgeons, when we hear locked knee, we think it's a knee that just can't move because it's locked in one position. But in fact, a locked knee is a knee that lacks full extension. In eMERGE, many patients who lack full extension, it's because of pain and swelling. And that might just reduce over time, and then the, the range of motion improves. But if there's a mechanical cause for it, as Dr. Medin mentioned earlier, bucket handle tear of the meniscus is most common, but the ACL, if it tears, the stump can come back onto itself, and it can lock, and it can act like a door jam in the knee that prevents full extension. And the problem is, is that if you don't have that range of motion for a number of weeks, patients may permanently lose that range. And six weeks is often sort of the, the golden number that's talked about. I mean, Dr. Medin can certainly speak more to that. But if a knee doesn't fully straighten for six weeks, that patient may permanently lose that range of motion of the knee. Hmm. So from an emergency perspective, you know, we, we see lots of patients like this where we suspect a meniscus tear. Which are the patients specifically that we should really be worried about a locked knee? And how does that change the management? The knee that lacks full extension, one really important thing is you've got to just check and see what it does. I mean, certainly full extension is painful for patients. So you have to gently check. But a 20-year-old female, this 30-year-old female that we have here as a patient, sometimes their other knee hyperextends 10 or 15 degrees. So if you get a knee that comes out to zero degrees, you feel like, oh, it's fully straightened. But if the other side, the normal side, hyperextends 15 degrees, then you can presume this patient is lacking 15 degrees of extension. And it may not look like a locked knee, but that's another little pearl and another example of why you have to examine the opposite side and see what it's like. Once you suspect it, again, it could be just pain and swelling. They need follow-up. If you have orthopedic surgeons who are readily available, they can follow up within a week or so. Explain to the patient it's important to get your knee straightened, ice it, try to work on it. Don't just sleep with a pillow under your knees. Try to rest your heel on a table and then let gravity slowly straighten it out. And sometimes it straightens out nicely in a week. And then we know they don't need urgent arthroscopy. But if they've tried that, you know, it's, it's a more comfortable position for the knee not being fully extended. And then if they don't extend it for a week, it feels even stiffer sometimes when they come back. And then you close follow-up. The difficulty comes if you don't have easy access to orthopedics. And if you have to send it back to a family physician or they come back to the emergency department, we often don't appreciate that lack of full extension. And if we don't appreciate it, we'll manage a suspected meniscal tear because say, oh, we can wait up to three months before we decide if it needs surgery. But if they actually lack full extension, we have weeks, not months to look after them. All right. So if there's one thing you remember about meniscal tears is be sure to check for extension. And if they don't have full extension or compared to the other side, they have much less extension, those patients should probably be seen sooner rather than later. Yeah. By, and by uh, I can make a point here. You don't need an MRI for a locked knee. If you've got a locked knee, it needs to be scoped and addressed. You don't need yeah. to wait three months for an MRI to confirm a meniscal tear or an ACL tear. The last thing I want to say in the most sensitive test for meniscal tear is joint line tenderness. Just examine the joint line. That's the most sensitive. Forget the McMurray, yeah. forget the Apley, forget all those things. Those yeah. are difficult tests. Just examine the joint line, see if they have joint line tenderness or not. Yeah, I, I never do an Apley in a clinic. I see tons of people with acute knees. I don't do an Apley, I don't do McMurray's. They have pain with full flexion, pain with full extension, joint line tenders. Look for joint line tenders. We have to learn how to examine the joint line. All right. So for meniscus injuries, look for joint line tenderness. Be sure to test for extension of the knee 
And if you're worried about a locked knee, those patients should be seen in the next week or two, not the next month right. or two. So before we wrap it up, Dr. Ciel, do you have any sort of general words of wisdom about orthopedic injuries for our EM cases listeners? Sure. I guess if I had to sum up one thing, I'm kind of at a unique stage in my career because I've been out in practice for 23, 24 years right now. 12 years of that was full-time eMERGE. And for the last 11, 12 years, I've run a minor fracture clinic and I've had access to the the expertise of nine brilliant colleagues in our hospital who've continued to teach me stuff every single shift uh, when I work in the fracture clinic. And what it is is this. The eMERGE approach generally to an MSK problem is to take the x-ray and let it tell us what's wrong. Take an x-ray. If it's positive, oh, that's a fracture or dislocation. If it's negative, oh, that's a soft tissue injury. doesn't really matter what. Unless there's snuff box tender, then we've got to worry about clinical scaphoid. And that's kind of how we often will sort of approach MSK injuries. And it doesn't really matter to us what the soft tissue injury is. And it's a totally misguided approach. And we would never do that for chest pain. We, again, we would never just sort of say, okay, do a troponin and an EKG. If it's positive, ACS. If it's negative, your chest pain, NYD. Like the history and the physical has to be empowered. And if you ever have the opportunity to see an orthopedic surgeon take a history, follow. It won't take long, but you'll understand what are the important pieces of the history. What is the age of the patient? What was the mechanism of injury? What were the forces involved? What happened afterwards? Was that a normal joint before or not? What are the other injuries or past medical history? And when you put that piece together, it tells you a lot. You can predict, just like when you hear chest pain, abdo pain history, you can predict 80%. The 20% then is, okay, let's examine them and see what we think. What do we suspect on history? Let's try to confirm on physical. It's no different for orthopedic injuries than it is for others. When we're not so sharp with the history and we're not so precise with the physical, we let the test do the work. And the x-rays are a good test, but boy, they miss a lot of stuff. And if all we do is we focus on the x-ray, we get blinded and we just sort of say, oh, it's negative, it's a soft tissue injury, and that becomes part of why I think you say at the outset, it's kind of unsatisfying because it's just this grab bag and like we think we can be better than that. And we actually can, but it doesn't mean CT and MR. It means history and physical. I couldn't have said it better myself. We can work it out. We can work it out. So thank you very much, Dr. CL. Thank you very much, Dr. Median, for your time and your expertise. I think the listeners will love this one. Before we go, I just want to let our listeners know that Dr. CL runs the Casted course, which how many a year are you doing now? About 50 a year. About 50 a year. I mean, this is incredible. He's going all over the country doing this course. It's been around for about eight years now. Uh, yep, exactly. I finished our eighth year. For about eight years. I've taken the course myself twice. I'm planning on taking it again because it's such a great course. It's a little bit different each time. And so I do recommend any of you who need to sharpen up their orthopedic skills, which I think pretty much all of us do, please check out casted.ca and we do recommend that you take that course. Thank you very much, Anton. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Anton. 